You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. My favourite review I've read of this book was on Goodreads and it was one sentence long. It was, these Rachels, they do be having incidents. (laughs) (laughs) They do, they do be having incidents. everyone. <laughs> it's nice to be here. <laughs> Hi everybody, it's nice to be here <laughs> for me as well. Um, my name's Abigail and I would first like to acknowledge that we're meeting today on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which this event is taking place, and acknowledge, and acknowledge any First Nations people here with us today. I pay my respect to their elders, past and present. In this referendum week, I particularly acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people, their storytelling traditions and care for country over many generations. Uh, Before we get started, I'd also like to say that the Spring Fling is supported by both the Victorian government through Creative Victoria and the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund. And special thanks to the booksellers from Readings who will be selling books at the signing after this event. And now to our guest, who I really probably do not need to introduce at all, but Caroline O'Donoghue is a novelist, podcaster and screenwriter. All Our Hidden Gifts, her fantasy series for young adults, is a New York Times bestseller and her latest novel, The Rachel Incident, is being adapted for TV by Universal Studios. I had a gasp. (laughs) No, gasp. Um, Caroline's podcast, Sentimental Garbage, charts internationally and has acquired over 7 million downloads worldwide. And I think about 6 million of those. Oh, yeah, were for from sure. 6.5. Yeah. <laughs> probably just from Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was born in Cork, Ireland, and currently lives in London. Um, hi. Hi. <laughs> Please join me again in hey. Um, so how's Australia so far? Are you on day two or three? This is day three days Thursday. Yeah, still getting yeah. over the jet lag. It's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, but I've, I can't believe it, really. I kind of, I really thought it's, it's been a bit like, you know, that film The Truman Show, but in reverse, where, you know, it's a story about, like, a man who thinks he's ordinary, but it turns out he's the most famous person in the world. <laughs> like, you guys are all hyping me up in my DMs so much. <laughs> that I'm walking around just thinking I'm the most famous person in Australia. And like when a waitress is nice to me, I'm like, is she nice to me because she's nice? Or is she nice to me because I'm the most famous woman in Australia? (laughs) It's like, it's so, so magical. And like, can I just take this opportunity right at the top to say thank you to the Wheeler Centre because they um, emailed me back in February or something asking if I'd come over. And at first I thought it would be one of those like depressing Zoom things where it's like, like my face would be up here kind of thing. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And uh, then, you know, I thought it was just going to be one of those things where like, you know, you get it all the time as an author where it's like, oh, the, the writer's workshop of Toronto welcomes you for a lunch. And you're like, okay. And then you never hear from them again. <laughs> and I thought this would be one of those things. And now that I'm actually here, I'm just, I'm so, I'm so touched and I'm having the best time and it's just great. Yeah, I, I bought this jumpsuit here today. 
Yeah, isn't this? I feel like this jumpsuit needs a round of applause. A little, a little commotion for the jumpsuit. <laughs> yeah, thank you, to, thank you to Melbourne Weather for not matching your expectations. I know. That you were forced to buy this amazing jumpsuit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I put on my stories earlier on. I was like, oh, thanks a lot, Melbourne Weather. Haha. And then there was so much like psychic sort of stress coming from all of you. <laughs> there was so much like, I'm so sorry. We're so sorry <laughs> that I just deleted it because I could just go like, oh no, the, the wave, the wave of sorrow. Um, so I went down to the amazing shopping centre across the road, the David's shopping centre. David Jones. <laughs> David's place. And, um, and I got this from this shop called Vow. Has anyone been? It's amazing. Like, go. <laughs> anyway, Melbourne tip for someone who's been here for three hours. Yeah, I experienced a bit of this, like, secondhand from far away because as soon as the Wheeler Centre announced this event, I just had people in my DMs not asking for tickets. They were like, because it sold out really fast, but they were like, I don't even want a ticket. I just want to be her best friend. Oh. And I feel like the only way to solve it is we have, like, a slumber party in here yeah. <laughs> tonight. Yeah. Um, but there are so many podcast listeners in Australia and you recently wrote a beautiful piece about that in um, the Sydney Morning Herald. Why do you think, do you have any sense of why, why you're so I've beloved been, here? I've been trying to get to the bottom of why because it is, it is nuts. Like, you know, the, I, I've been so thrilled and flattered to like sell out all these venues across the country. But like, to be clear, you know, I'm from Cork. When I released Rachel, a book set in Cork, um, we got a venue that was a hundred people and my publicist was like... I don't know if we'll fill it. <laughs> I'm like, I, I just, you know, I, it's not that I don't have a profile there. I do. It's just um, no one really cares that much, you know. And, and uh, then, you know, just during lockdown, obviously, you know, th th there's, a, there's a kind of a simple A to B explanation, which is you guys had like a very early lockdown. You had a very severe lockdown. It went on really, really long. I really feel for you guys. Like, I feel for everybody, but you guys got it pretty bad. Um, and... Then, you know, me and Dolly were doing Sentimental in the City and like so many people messaged me to be like, you know, on my little, my silly little walk every day. I do, I do half an hour of the episode and the episodes were nine hours long, as we all remember. <laughs> so it was like people were like parceling it out over the week. And I think that really helped. It was kind of quite cozy atmosphere and it was intimate. Mm -hmm. And so I think that made sense that people got into it. And But it only makes sense to a point because like, the correspondence I've got from Australian women has been over and above anything I've gotten from anywhere else in the world. It's like, like long, really funny, really moving emails that just feels like people just like bursting with things to say. I've gotten like the funniest, best emails from Australian women. I just, I want to live here. <laughs> so cool. You know, I, I can't, I mean, can you explain it? Is that there just seems to be this like incredible hunger or thirst for analysis and I've, Feminist leaning content. I'm not sure what is yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I, when I think about the people who are um, messaging me wanting to be your best friend, I think <laughs> that they're really, really mostly like women and really smart women who have interests that they want to be taken seriously. Yeah. You know, like the Eras Tour, like yeah. um, Sex in the City, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So but I think that like, really speaks to people. There's this like, I keep saying this out loud to myself alone while I'm walking the streets of, of your lovely country. And uh, I keep saying, I think Australia is going to have a moment. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you think that because you're here. <laughs> Everyone's being nice to you. Um, but you know how, like, 
there there's like periodically I don't know how or why it happens but like the entire world will just get really wet for one country like at the moment it's Ireland and I'm profiting handsomely <laughs> off of it it's just like hand over fist it's great and then like a few years ago it was all of Scandinavia and then like I feel like in the early noughties it was Canada <laughs> and mm. now I feel like it's going to be Australia all right. next all right. we're ready <laughs> I hope you guys are ready for the <laughs> Um, so you've had a massive year. You released this book, which has yeah. been really successful. You moved house and mm-hmm. you got married. Yeah. Um, I feel like a late night talk show host setting you up for an <laughs> anecdote right now, which is actually appropriate because somebody in the book writes for a late night TV oh. show in the States. By the way, do you have any idea where James... Which TV show he writes for? Which late night US? Have you have you had a thought of where oh, he works? In, no, in my head it's very much like it's Jimmy Fallon. It's like that kind yeah, of vibe. Yeah, I was a bit disappointed. I mean, I thought it's Jim, Jimmy Fallon and I'm disappointed yeah. that it's Jimmy Fallon. Who, who did you want it to be? <laughs> I thought, well, I was like, Conan couldn't pay him enough. Um, <laughs> and I sort of wanted it to be Colbert or... <laughs> who's the guy that interviews writers? The guy oh. that was on Saturday Night Live. Oh, um, I don't Seth know. Myers. Seth Myers. Yeah, I wanted it to be more of the cerebral people, but I was like, no, it's I, someone fun and slightly problematic like Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, no, yeah. 100% it's Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you recently got married yeah. and you did a great podcast episode about it. And if anyone yeah. here hasn't started their parasocial relationship with this person, yeah. I recommend this podcast, Sentimental Garbage, <laughs> and this episode's a great one to start with. Um, but you were talking about your wedding really openly as someone who hadn't been that excited like throughout your life mm. to get married mm. um, and talking about the things that went right, which was most things and a couple of things that went wrong. But you had this beautiful yeah. line that just kind of like flew out of your mouth. Like so that like that so happen so often happens on the podcast where you just sort of say this really wise thing and move on and I'm like, what? Like <laughs> I need to get that tattooed or something. And the line was, um, what got you here won't get you there. And it was about yeah. the music. And this is my late night, mo- yeah. late night show moment of like, can you just explain to us? Because I think yeah. that that yeah. concept kind of applies in general, not just to that specific um, anecdote what? from the wedding. I'm so glad that you plucked that out because that's not my wisdom. That, so I was listening to... Um, <laughs> no, because sometimes it often happens on the podcast. It's obviously, you know, I get up that morning and I know I'm doing a podcast on a specific subject that day. And I have my little, in the shower, my little pre-prepared lines. And as always, when you pre-prepare to say anything, the person you're talking to can always... Like tell it's like in the texture that you like thought that you were going you, you planned that and you can see like a, a look of mild disgust come over their face there's something really weird about it it's like kissing someone and then realizing their eyes are open it's like it's like oh no you're very calculating it's uh, it's inhumane um but um with that that thing what's um well, what got you here won't get you there i remember hearing Nicki minaj say it <laughs> Wow. And me and my wedding day and Nicki Minaj have a lot psychically in common. Um, but, you know, she, uh, there's one of my favorite songs by her called Dear Old Nicki. And it's about, and, and she's, ta- sorry, con- contemporary reference, like for the Pink Friday album. Um, but she talked about how, you know, she had to be, in order to get where she is, she had to be like really young and scrappy and like really make, she'd be really fierce with people and, uh, uh, then once you, but once you get to a level, you can't continue that energy because it fits or wears differently on like an incredibly famous person. Mm. And she, you know, that song is about her letting go of that. But so then, this was your dear old Caroline moment yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> dear old Caroline, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, the thing with the wedding was then like um, I had spent 
the whole year fantasizing about this one moment where I would walk down the aisle with Gav to like this really specific piece of music that meant a lot to me and a lot to our relationship and was relevant for all these little ways that things are relevant to couples. And um, then the violinist <laughs> didn't show up. Um, and uh, yeah, as, as Gavin said, never trust an Irishman whose job is violin. <laughs> And, uh, and then I was, I was so disappointed at the moment, and so then I walked back down the aisle uh, to nothing. But what I, everyone was just clapping and cheering because there were so many things that went wrong that everyone had like a hand in fixing it. It's like it was either, you know, because we, we got, the, the event time was different on like the invite to versus something else. And so people had to like crawl around the town, like getting people out of their houses and into their suits and into the car. And uh, you, so many people had played a part in like these last minute snafus. And so when they were cheering, it wasn't just a cheering for the wedding, it was a cheering for like, guys, we did it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow, this is so much more magical than some old fucking piece of music. Do you know what I mean? And I, it, it was so interesting to me because I was like, oh, the, the, the fun of that fantasy was the fantasy. And actually, sometimes things are more fun dreaming about them, you know? Yeah, so do you think that's a sentiment that could apply to like either writing a book or publishing a book? That like, Oh, what is so it? What got you here won't get you there? Because obviously yeah. when you start a book, you have a dream of what it's going to be. Totally. And it's never going to be that. And then when you publish it, when, yeah, I guess like you yeah. have a fantasy and it's not that. This seems to me probably better than anything you fantasized about. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, it's so interesting. But like, um, I mean, to go back to my sort of earlier point, like planning a book, obviously everyone plans their book and everyone, you know, plots it accordingly or whatever. And um but it's a bit like planning a conversation. Like when you go to meet up with a friend, you have a vague sense of what you're going to talk about and what you want to catch up on. And then so if it's a good conversation, you're an hour and 45 minutes in and you haven't talked about any of that really. Or you've touched on it, but then you bled away into something mm. else. And that's how reading a novel should feel. It should feel like great conversation. And uh, yeah, and like I remember when I was planning the Rachel incident... I remember feeling like it was going to be this kind of dark and not dark, but like a very naughty kind of thing of like two friends in love with the same man. And it was going to be full of that sort of like charged resentment. And then the book that came out of it was not like, like basically, you know, it's a story about a girl whose best friend steals the man who she has a crush on essentially. And then everything that happens next. Uh, and she gets over it in like two seconds, you know, and mm. it, the book it turned out to be about something totally different, you know? Hmm. So yeah, what got does you? Fit. <laughs> yeah, what got you here? What got you there? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you moved to London from Ireland when you were we twenty one. Twenty one. Yeah. So when I was like preparing for this, I kept thinking about that and thinking like it's so young, and I was wondering like yeah. why I thought that because people move away for like university, work, relation. You know, people move yeah. away when they're really young. But I thought like maybe it's just because it, I think you never went back. Yeah. And actually, even though I'm sure you didn't feel like it when you got off the plane at... Tw did you take the plane? Yeah, at yeah, 21. Yeah. That um, you didn't... You know, like, there, that there is a bit of a straight line between then and now. You're still yeah. living in London, but obviously you didn't know that then. And there's something, I don't know, really, like, meaningful to me or, like, yeah. moving about that. You were, you were... Yeah, 21's young. Yeah, and you know what? It, it, I think... It, anyone, anyone 21 in the house? <laughs> Woo! 21! <laughs> Like, um, you, you couldn't have told me at 21 that 21 was young, you know. Mm. I felt uh, 
so so ready for it. But now I, I think back and I think of people I know who are 21 and it, oh, and, and like I think back of all these like because I didn't have any connections at all. You know, I didn't have any. I think a lot of Irish family have. You've, Irish people have family in London. I didn't. I didn't have any real friends. I had like one one acquaintance who I used to work with, and I I stayed on his, I stayed on a mattress next to his dryer for six months, <laughs> and then after that, I am. Um, and this is a character who actually does crop up at the end of the Rachel incident. Um, I, I moved in with this guy who was like a fortune teller, <laughs> but like you think that's gonna be such a fun experience. <laughs> And it so wasn't. Um, but like, I, like, yeah, and he was just a total freak. And like, he, like, he was, it was just an awful, awful time. And like, he, um, he, he was like 45 and he dreamed to dance in the London Olympics. And that was his main dream. And he wasn't a dancer. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was so violently depressing. And, um, and then, yeah, and like the, the years since, like, it's so funny to me because I am... Um, so w the only thing I really had, the only thing that stopped me from moving home... Well, well, first of all, it was that there was nothing going on in Ireland. The recession had hit in really badly. Was that uh, when, is that the main reason that you moved? Was because of the recession? Or? It wasn't, it wasn't. Because, like, I... So I... It's funny, I've only kind of uncovered this memory recently. Um, because I um, was... Doing, I was writing a little bit over there, so I was. Uh, I had this blog that I started when I was a student, did reasonably well, and uh, the editor of a local free paper, um, she saw it and she got me to review gigs, um, just in exchange for free gig tickets. But if you're like, if you're 20 and you're reviewing gigs, you just think you're like God's dick. <laughs> like, you're just, like you couldn't have. Again, you couldn't have told me. You know, I, and uh, I had this. Uh, I had this very sexy boyfriend who I was obsessed with. And then I remember I, I accepted this internship, this unpaid internship, to write for a film website in London called Best for Film. Don't try and look for it. It, it is defunct. <laughs> like so much of my early writing career, it belongs to websites that are defunct. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I applied for that because it looked like there was nothing going to happen. And then uh, I got it. And then, like, a days before I was due to leave, I was offered a staffer role at that newspaper, at that free newspaper, also defunct, um, <laughs> the media. Uh, and I remember, like, I, there actually was a choice. There was a moment where I was like, oh, I can either do this unpaid internship in the city where I know nobody, or I can, I can stay here and live in my parents' house and whatever, ha see, keep seeing the sexy boy. And... Um, I, I, I didn't, and I don't really know why exactly, except that I just, well, I do know why. I've been dying to get out since I was a kid, you know? I think, yeah, I, I, I think because uh, I'm the baby in a big family, and I have, like, very charismatic siblings, and basically my entire school career was just filled with girls in my class who either had fucked or fucked my brother, you know? <laughs> and, and that's a harsh, that's a harsh buzz. And... <laughs> It's a rough toke. Um, <laughs> and uh, I just felt like, you know, that I, it was, anyone who grew up in a small town or a small city has this of feeling like you can't get out from under it and everyone knows who you are and if you try anything a little different, you're, it's like, oh, you know, trying something, are we, kind of thing. And it feels, especially when you're 20, 21 and you're, that, your, your sense of self is so fragile and you feel like anyone raising their eyebrow at you, even in like, even in fun, even in like good faith, it feels so crushing. 
And so wanting to get out from under it uh, was such a huge, huge desire. But I, so I moved to London and I uh, started working at this film website that was totally unpaid. And the, own, the way it made its money was that, or maybe it got content, was that every six weeks it would take on four new interns and then just boot them out and restart the cycle. And that sound, and it was the time, it was the style of the time. Uh, very 2010s. Yeah. Very 2010. This a strong uh, theme in this book of unpaid internships, and they are predatory. But also, it's hard to think of a. It's hard to think of how else you could do it, really, because you just ha- they're just kind of one of those things in in the arts that everyone just has to do. Um, but w- the, the two people who were running that internship, one of them was called Natasha Hodgson, who's been on the podcast before and who's now a star on the West End, and the other one is John Underwood, who is. Um, my friend Ella, who's been on the podcast several times, her, her partner who died several years ago. And those two people, they knew they couldn't give their interns anything, but what they could give them was a community. And so because there were four new interns every six weeks, it like created this sort of, yeah, society of us really. And so many of those people have gone on to be authors or TV writers, and we all just really kept together and that was the main reason why I never left because like the idea of leaving these amazing people was was too much like it felt like I don't know it, 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 maybe I'm I'm being too nostalgic about it but it, I feel about it like you know Bennington College where like Brett Easton Ellis and Donna Tart went or something you know it was it was it's just it was an amazing atmosphere and everything was hard but but friends weren't you know mm. And so writing was kind of the goal when you moved over? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I sort of pursued journalism a lot, and I was so bad at it. <laughs> because, like, I loved writing, but I hated the news, you know? I hate... <laughs> oh, like, serious news yeah. journalism. Well, like, that's the only... Yeah, that's what yeah. they... Yeah, if they're, if they're going to hire a young journalist, they want it to be somebody who's kind of scrappy and who can be on the scene and whatever. And I had no interest in being scrappy or on the scene. I just wanted to, like... <laughs> Right, you know, 15 reasons why tights are annoying, <laughs> like, you know, or whatever, like, and uh, I just wanted to, to write, and um, so I got a job uh, at a feminist website called The Pool, now defunct, and <laughs> it was so funny, because, like, they, uh, you know, it was supposed to be this kind of, like, collection of, like, you know, serious news journalism but also uh, for but with a with a female slant but also like here's this hot new maxi skirt kind of thing it was a n- nice website but it would be like okay today's new story marissa you're on uh, the irish abortion debate lynn you're on fgm caroline there's a flying squirrel <laughs> it's a really good video can you write it up about 500 <laughs> words about it and i was like yes <laughs> Yeah, and then that brought me, that kind of, I got sort of a following as being like the funny writer on that website, and uh, I got an agent through that, and uh, six books later, here we are. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And where does the podcast fit into that? So that started in 2018? Yes, it did, yeah. It's funny, the podcast, because it started because I wrote my first novel, Promising Young Women, and... Uh, the way I structured it, the way I was like, I was so excited by it was that I wanted something to start as like, and feel like a, like a Bridget Jones diary or like a Nick Hornby book or a Marion Keys book, a real like commercial, fluffy, fun novel. And um, then I wanted it to veer into this like Daphne du Maurier, Angela Carter, gothic narrative. And that was really exciting to me. 
Um, and then when like, the reviews came through and when the interviews came through, even like good reviews and, and like really well intentioned, thoughtful interviewers were very much like the attitude was, um, oh, it's so interesting how you you parody these, you know, Marion Keys or these authors, you parody these authors in order to make this serious, important point about, you know, that the book was about was about sort of um, uh, abuse, kind of sex abuse in the workplace. And uh, I was like, no, it's not a parody. I, I, think, I think these, <clears throat> sorry, I think these books are every bit as uh, relevant artistically as Daphne du Maurier or Angela Carter is. I don't see them as being opposed to one another. I see them as being in conversation with one another. And then I realized that like, oh, it's like not just speci specific to how I'm being interviewed. These books are, not, not only are they sort of, you know, sneezed at. There's also, these are books like The Other Bolin Girl or Riders by Julie Cooper. These are books that have millions of people have read. They have never been out of print. They've been adapted for TV and film. And yet when you look online for like essays deconstructing why they were good, why they were popular, what it spoke to in the culture, there was nothing. There would just be like, you know, Goodreads comments or whatever. And I was like, oh, there's a huge gap here. And like, it, it was like that wonderful moment that happens every now and then in, in, in life where you're like, oh, there's, a, there's a, a gap in the market that not only can I fill, I want to fill it. And like, I feel so like, this is my place. And so I did this, um, five, it was like, it was gonna be a five episode miniseries and that was it's gonna be a one-off and then I just kept doing it and kept doing it, and then I just kept expanding the remit because like it felt like the the, the quest to legitimize commercial female novelists the, the war was won you know if you look into any bookshop today like you see like Emily Henry's books or like fourth wing or whatever these like like fat book deals being dropped on like uh like commercial rom-coms essentially and it, like the, yeah the war had been won and it was great and, but like, there's still so much other stuff that I wanted to investigate that just make up the fabric of female life, you know, cultural lives that was so fascinating to me and like continues to be so fascinating to me. And do you, have, do you see a change in these last five years that you've been doing the podcast? Um, like, do you think we are taking things like the, I can't say this word, but oeuvre of Taylor oeuvre, Swift? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or like Sex in the Cities, Sex in the City as a series? Like, do you think that we do... Yeah. Take them more seriously. When I was thinking about this question, I really just wanted to ask you, how do men in public places respond when you tell them what you do? Because I think that that kind of mm. gives us a gauge of like, are we taking these things more seriously? Or uh, yeah. not that men represent the culture, but... <laughs> well, that's actually, I think you said something really important there, which is that um, I think, I think we're women now more than ever don't give a fuck what men think anymore. Mm. I think there was this thing that happened post Me Too where there was like this, this rage in, in female culture of like just not wanting to put up with it anymore, not wanting to, not caring quite so much anymore to impress boys in, in that way because like, frankly, they're behaving in a way that doesn't impress us. And then, but when you sort of, you know, in that moment, there was such a, kind of a, the seeds of like real female community. That's not just about feminism or, because there was a lot of talk around then about just like, you know, I think sure it was the same in Australia. Like I would say around 2016 to 2018, 
there was a lot of like you know talking about the Bechdel test talking about um like all these different sort of cultural things and lots of like feminist analysis of media but I think we emerged from that into not just talking about feminist analysis but female community I think we're so much more more interested in impressing each other and engaging with each other now and like the gaze in female society i think has female society um has turned in rather than out we're not looking mm. to on, on by and large the women i seem to meet they're not looking to like Im impress guys with their sort of like indie music knowledge anymore the way that they were <laughs> Or maybe I was just younger then, and that was what we were all doing. I don't know. But when I meet, and I'm, I'm at these sort of talks, I meet like really young women, and who are just like super pumped about Titanic, you know. And um, and I think I think that's great, you know. So you were recently a guest on the Shameless podcast. And yes. Oh my God, they're so amazing, <laughs> aren't they? Yeah. Well, I only met Michelle, but I hear Zara is great too. <laughs> um, and you were talking about that um, you had loved Kanye's music when you were younger and mm. that um, it used to be that if you loved an artist's work and then they were sort of revealed to be problematic in any way that you kind of had to publicly yeah. denounce them and say, I'm never listening to any of that music again. Yeah. Um, do you think that that's changed? It's interesting because like I, um, I think it has changed. It's changed for me anyway. It's hard to know. It's hard to take a litmus test of all of everyone because uh, I'm, I'm only really ever talking to the people who are following sentimental garbage, so therefore they're already interested in cultural conversations. But I do think that thing of like, um, it's always the thing of separating the artist from the art, which is, you know, kind of an exhausting conversation because it's it's the same. It's different for everybody. Everybody has their own level of comfort. Like I can listen to an old Kanye West record, even though I find him deeply problematic and extremely anti-Semitic, and and just a host of other problematic things. But for some reason, that music. I just brought back to me as a 19-year-old or whatever. And, it, and that's, that's what it will feel like in my head and in my soul. I don't really think about him that much as a person. I think about the music. And, but then, meanwhile, someone like Louis C.K., like, I used to love his stand-up so much, and now it just like, kind of makes me queasy, you know? Um, so it's, it's sort of such an independent judgment call, but I am fascinated by this thing of, like... I'm so conscious on Sentimental Garbage that, like... You know, sometimes we talk about stuff that, like that I love, and sometimes we talk about stuff I don't really care about that much, and, but the guest does. And I, I never want to get into the situation where I'm like picking apart stuff and being like, oh, you know, oh, this came out in 2002, and look how very 2002 it is, and like, look at the politics of it, or all this kind of stuff, because I find that, you know, really unhelpful, and I think it also, it asks art to do a job that art was never supposed to do. I'm thinking a lot about like, like there's a lot that art and pop culture can give us, like it can make us empathetic and enlivened and, and light us up and do all these amazing things, but it can't, it can't vote for us, you know? It can't, we have to think about what it can't do. And I think when we increasingly comb through our art for the moral lessons that it can or can't teach us, it's like going to the hardware store to buy milk, you know? It's like you're, you would you just, just let it be what it is. Like the art is static, but you are the thing that keeps changing. And like, let yourself, let the layers of yourself kind of like come to it that way. I actually, the episode that we have today with, with Michelle, Michelle Andrews on Sentimental is about Kylie, which is really fun to be in like her home city and to release an episode about Kylie. And we were talking about, and I'm sure everyone knows the story about how Kylie, like when she was coming up, 
um, how this radio station here was like, oh, we've improved Kylie Minogue's music. We're not playing it. And that's like, that's so horrible. <laughs> like, that's such a horrible thing to do to a young artist. But at the exact same time, I can imagine being 22 years old in like 1993 or something. And the only way I can get music is either by buying it or listening to it on the radio. And suddenly this like teeny bopper from that corny show <laughs> is like all over the radio and how like pissed off you would be, <laughs> you know? I think there's this temptation um, to like pat yourself on the back, just for being born in the right time <laughs> of being like, well, if only they had known back then that Padam was coming out. <laughs> you know, it's so, it's sort of like the lowest form of like self, self-esteem of being, well, good on me for being born in 1990. You know? <laughs> um, so so back to this idea of what got you here won't get you there. Yeah. Um, before you were at the Rachel Project, you were working on another novel. You weren't. You weren't writing the Rachel. Sorry, yeah. the Rachel incident. Um, you were. Um, yeah, you were working on a novel before that called Claire. Um, yeah. Oh my God, you got the title. Yeah. <laughs> that title I got right. Claire. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how it became? or how this became the book that you finished yeah. and got published. So I was working on Claire for nearly three years. Uh, it was 70,000 words long. <laughs> That's quite close to being done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you were under contract for that book, I was you? under contract, yeah. yeah. I signed it before I... Um, so I had two books with my adult publisher, and then I signed a contract to do a trilogy of young adult books. And my So I was under contract for Claire, but my publisher was very understanding that I had to go and write these young adult books. And um, when I came back to Claire, and I had been like working on bits and scraps over the years, and I was like, okay, now is the year I work on Claire. Sorry. And then uh, the sort of the thesis of Claire was that I had worked in this like feminist office space, and I was fascinated by how, as like a young idealistic group of women, we had all gone into this office wanting to change the media landscape, and how you know, how quickly the hypocrisies of the movement became revealed by virtue of, like, when you have a movement, any kind of movement, whether it's socialism or feminism or whatever, but it, it also has to meet the demands of capitalism. It, it, it's, all, it's uh, you know, just completely doesn't make any sense because, like, if you're trying to do this, like, this noble thing and you're also, like... Like, one thing that happened when we were there. So we had to just keep on growing the site. It was an investor-led thing. It never turned to profit, but we had to keep getting investors. And in order to get investors, we had to keep showing growth. And there's only so many, like, you know, cool, interesting, millennial, like, women in the world. You have to keep, you have to keep on expanding and expanding. And uh, what happened was, like, stuff like, for example, remember that um, news story a few years ago where Kate Middleton was on the holidays and... Uh, a journalist with a long lens took a photo of her, something topless, and the Daily Mail ran those photographs, and it was every, it was the talking point everywhere for like a week, and then we, as a feminist news site, also ran the photos, but judging the Daily Mail for running the photos, and like you know it was it was all good because you know we cropped the picture at her like here at her collarbones or whatever like right here, and. Uh, and I like I, I just remember thinking like I'm so done with this <laughs> like this is this is awful you know and so Claire was a story that it was going to be like um, an exaggerated version of that of these people working in a feminist office and uh, it was told from the perspective of three different people who were working there and uh, it was going to be this thing where it like this this company sort of changed the world and then 
just kind of hit the skids and it was going to chart that kind of progress. And um, then uh, as further I got into it, uh, you know, I just, it was making me really unhappy. Uh, not just because the subject matter is kind of depressing, but because like COVID was also happening and it's like everything I just explained there I think is interesting and relevant, but like during COVID, quite frankly, who gives a fuck? Do you know what I mean? Like, like, who gives a fuck about like the hypocrisies of a feminist workplace when like half the world is like inside and like, you know, it was just like, we just, it felt like there was bigger fish to fry and it just felt like not the right conversation to be having. And it also it felt like, you know, uh, this is going to be this incredibly like technophobic novel about like the evils of technology when like the only thing that was keeping society together was technology. And I was like, maybe not. And it was just like making me really depressed. And also it was like, it was me trying to write in a voice that wasn't natural. It wasn't just the plot. It was the fact that, like, I was trying to ape this kind of novel that I enjoy reading, but I've now realized I shouldn't ever write, where it's, like, the genre that I can just call, like, mean millennial woman. <laughs> where it's, like, her, her thinking acerbic things at yoga, you know? And, like, <laughs> as, as I ate my eggs Benedict, I noticed that Chantelle was still talking about herself. <laughs> kind of, like, kind of... <laughs> Just like, you know, kind of thing. And uh, it's, yeah, it just, it sort of bummed me out. And then I, I, I so it was, I was like, I, whatever I got to write, this is February, the book was due in May. And um, my publisher was like, we really do need it in May, because otherwise it will be like three years since your next last adult novel or whatever. And uh, I was like, okay, I can't in good faith publish this novel, because not, not only is it horrible to write, like if it's horrible to write, imagine how it's going to feel to promote mm trying to like convince, convince a room full of people that I haven't completely lost faith in the idea. And uh, I was like, whatever I write, I, it has to be, be done in 11 weeks, because that's how long I had. And um, it has to be something I have no, not even one excuse to open one Google Chrome tab. <laughs> because another problem with Claire is like, when you're losing faith in an idea, Google is so attractive. And I was going on these mad like research rabbit holes like I had a six hour lunch with a Lebanese priest because, and he was great, um, but, um, but uh, like, I was like, one of the characters was Lebanese. I was like, I must get a background of her faith. <laughs> no, I don't. Like, um, uh, yeah, and, and so, so I, I wrote this, I wrote Rachel, first of all, because I wanted it to make me happy and I wanted whoever read it to feel happy and, and cozy and, and like the world was worth hoping for. And it had to not have a Lebanese priest in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it had to yeah, be from a time and a place I knew really well. And so you did write it in 11 weeks. Yeah, it was crazy. It was really crazy. And that's not how books normally get written, really. You know, like, it's, it, it's mad. And it was such a lovely time because, like, lots of... Lots, if anyone's read the book yet, um, the, there's quite a few references to Sentimental in the City in there. And uh, there's like, quite a few things that they say that me and Dolly have said in the podcast. And um, that was just like, I was, I was recording the podcast with Dolly uh, at the time that I was writing it. And I was also like going for endless walks with my friend Ryan. And, but also, but apart from that, there was nothing else to do. And I felt like a monk illuminating a manuscript in a, like a fifth century tower. It felt <laughs> so snug. It was, like, it was the only thing happening in my life was this and the podcast. And there was, no, there was no dinners with friends. There was no bars. There was no writer events where you feel inadequate. It was just, just this. And it was, it was lovely. 
Um, and I love the friendship of the two main characters. That's kind yeah. of the coziest thing is like yeah. you just want to keep hanging out with them. Yeah. Um, and it's the book's such a love letter to their friendship. And so Rachel is a straight woman. James is a gay. I don't even want to call him a man because he's so young. He's but a boy. he's yeah, he's a baby, a young gay man. Yeah. And I was thinking about um, there. There isn't that much representation out there. Uh, that I know of, of people that age of those demographics. I think that most of the things that come to mind are TV shows like mm. Will and Grace, which you mentioned in the book, mm-hmm. and even more recently, like The Other Two, which is a brother-sister. Oh, I love that show. Yeah, the and other two Difficult so People, which was the Billy Eichner, Julie Klausner one. But they're yeah. mostly characters in their 30s um, yeah. who are very like, yeah, snippy and cynical and great but these characters are just so much younger and messier than them and it was really great to see that kind of age group represented yeah no it's it's funny writing about 20 year olds it's such a unique thing because your their teens were so recent and uh this is like their first time really living out of home properly and um i was really struck by something keeps going round and round my head this um brooke shields documentary (laughs) very random um it's on Disney Plus, and it's like a self-produced... We all know who Brooke Shields is, right? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, beautiful child. Fun adult. Um, the, the, she, she talks about, like... So she was... When, when she was, like, like 10 or 11, um, she was, like, the most famous child in the world. Like, her face was everywhere. She was a million ads. She was in these iconic films that were incredibly risque and still feel, like, so near the knuckle where she was playing, like, child prostitutes who, like... You know, one of her characters, she was 12 years old and losing her virginity to a 30-year-old man. And and people were really shocked by that. And she would go on these talk shows with her mom and people would, like, boo her mother, you know? And and this thing, she was like... She said, as a 55-year-old woman, she was saying, it's so interesting. She's like, people... I, I, I sat on those stages and people asked me... People were so concerned about me and that I was concerned I was being exploited, concerned I was being harmed. But I knew what I was doing. I knew that I was making art movies. Like it was very, I have a complete separation of church and state. Like I, I felt very looked after most of the time and like it was good. And she like, and then I turned 18 and I was raped. And it was like the world cared so much about her innocence, her purity, her potential, her intelligence, her aspirations, whether or not she wanted to go to college. And then she hit this like invisible marker and then it was like she was fair game. And I find that such uh, like a ghoulish exaggeration of the female experience where like everyone's rooting for you until they're not. And, and like everyone wants you to do well and like this girl can and women in STEM and learn to code chick, you know, <laughs> like and then there just comes a point where it's almost like, eh, you know, and and I think that's what's fascinating about about writing about a 20-year-old. It's kind of, and that's Rachel in the book. She's done this degree that she's just finishing and she's already realizing is worthless to her, or she thinks it is. And it feels like she grew up with all this potential and shininess. And I always think of Rachel as being somebody who, her, all, her reports car, all her report cards said, a joy to have in class, you know? And... Uh, and then suddenly it kind of crumbles around her and the world is less interested in protecting her and she doesn't really know what to do with that, you know? I, f- I find that fascinating. Yeah, the... Um, the I'm trying not to give any spoilers, actually. Yeah, no, it's such a spoiler. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But um, 
Yeah, the book is so kind of like the early part of the book is so episodic and you're just hanging out with these characters and it's lovely. And then when we started to kind of hit some plot, I was like, oh, my God, this is like I was happy just hanging out with them. But like (laughs) all of a sudden there's stuff happening. Did you structure it like that? Did you know the structure of it when you before you wrote it or did that kind of hit you as you were going along? Yeah. I should have known it's called the Rachel incident. I should have known there'd be things happening. (laughs) My favourite review I've read of this book was on Goodreads and it was one sentence long. It was, these Rachels, they do be having incidents. (laughs) (laughs) They do. They do be having incidents. Um, The plot, uh, yeah, no, I feel very passionately that a novelist who doesn't prioritise plot is only doing half their job. Like, I don't care how good your sentence is or how good your prose is, like have some fucking respect. Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I really do feel... I, there's so few people in my book that can get away with it. Um, and I do think there's, like, a real reticence in contemporary literary novels to engage with plot in a meaningful way. Like, I read this book recently. I won't say what it is, but if you ask me at the signing table, I will tell you. And it was like... I was like, oh, my God, yes, like, this beautiful, like, this really literary plot, literary um, writing, but, like, this... um really propulsive plot. I was like, this is my dream book. I like ate it in a day. And then, and it was like really building to the ending. And then she just doesn't give you an ending. She just kind of stops it. It it almost feels like there's a chapter missing or something. And like, I think some people find that really arty and arch and interesting, but I just felt like, why are you blue balling your audience? (laughs) It's so rude, you know? Um, And uh, yeah, and like I, so plot is really important to me. and And I also think there's a reticence um, to to include plot and especially it's interesting because like I think novelists are getting younger and younger which is not a bad thing like I was very young I was 26 when I got my agent I was 28 when my first book came out and that's quite young by standards but I think um, because novelists are getting younger and younger they are and because also the infrastructure around novelists is different now in that they are so aware of Goodreads and NetGalley and all these things where they can read criticism of other books. They don't, they're so afraid of failing in public and there's nothing that's easier to fail at than bad plot. You know what I mean? If people think that something is like corny or cheesy and so they just don't write it at all. Mm. And, um, you, and plot is one of those things that you can't get good at unless you practice. Like my first two books, the plots are all over the place. Like, they're so rank. Um, it's just like, like, it's like, you know, dramatic events happening that don't need to be there and, like, vague references to magical realism that don't need to be there. And I'm still proud of those books, but, like, it's one of those things you can only get good at by failing in public, you know? And I think that's, that's never spoken about. So you, you asked whether I had planned it, and the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I wanted there to be, like, a juicy event every 30 pages, you know? Mm-hmm. We well, definitely achieved that, and I do want to open it to audience questions. But oh, sure. while yeah. everyone's thinking, um, I did want to ask you finally: Do you have any fantasy casting for this Rachel incident TV show? Oh, so we are in conversations oh, with someone. Okay, yeah. for which for which role? For Rachel. Okay. Okay. <laughs> It's leave. either somebody Irish or somebody who's no. Great it's somebody. At, great it's somebody Irish, okay. and uh, it's not Saoirse Ronan. <laughs> She's apparently still reading, but that was six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, uh, fantasy, no, because like it, it's really difficult with uh, casting uh, because you know there um, 
they're really young people and like most actors you know, most actors are in their 30s, it seems. Like, there aren't that many, unless they're, like, like Disney-turned stars, you know. There's, right. there's not that many, and there's certainly not that many Irish young actors. Um, yeah, I was trying to think if Paul Mescal could kind of... Yeah, he's booked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's booked and blessed. He's not going to be... He's not going to be doing another one of these, no. He could show up as Carrie, as the Carrie character. Just no, do. I think he's overexposed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like one of the, he's just so everywhere at the moment. Like, you know, and also he would never do it. It's like he's got better things to do. Um, <laughs> uh, but in, though, in terms of like, uh, who, who? No, I don't really have anyone specific. There's like these 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 specific people who like through the ages are like touchstones for me. Of like that's them. Like um, you know Bill Hader. Mm-hmm. He's like a character actor, and he's in his, his 40s now. But he used to be a writer on SNL. And there's this document. Before that, he was the intern at South Park. And there's this famous documentary. It's famous documentary about South Park. It's called Seven Days to Air. And it's about how they make every episode in seven days. And Bill Hader is the intern in the background. And he's like wearing this like top man hoodie from like 2001. And he's like got it all scooped up. And he's got these big eyes and this emo fringe. And I remember I, I was watching. I was like, that's James. That's, that's who that is, you know? <laughs> So it's like little moments like that, and like for for Dini, I always imagine like Shelley Duvall in mm. in The Shining, um, <laughs> not because she like goes that Rachel with an axe or anything, but more that somebody who seems really fragile but is really fucking strong. Um, so it's like li- like mm. I have little pop culture moments that stick in my brain as being very them, um, but not like specific casting ideas. Okay, well, I'm very excited for this show. Yeah. Um, let's open it up to audience questions. We have a couple of people from the Wheeler Centre with roving mics, if you want to just put your hands yes. up. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Um, uh, Sentimental in the City is my, like, anxiety day listen, my <laughs> re-listen, because I've listened to it about 100 times. But I want to know, is there a TV show, movie, song, uh, or a podcast that you listen to on your anxiety day? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Great question. Thank you. Um, and thank you for... I'm glad it calms you down. <laughs> that's, that's not, because, like, uh, this sounds terrible, but sometimes I listen to Sentimental in the City to calm me down. <laughs> and that's sad, I know. <laughs> but it's, it's also... Not, like, like, me and Dolly talk about this all the time, how we're like, if that's kind of the best thing we ever do with our careers... That's fine. Like, <laughs> like it was. It was. It, it, it was. It felt special to make, and it, I think it, it's okay. That was. That was special. It was fun, and it was why we all know each other now. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, what I podcasts. I, so I'm a real uh, insomniac, which is, is the worst thing about my life. And um, but I'm very blessed otherwise, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> um, but the uh, the podcast I always listen to when I can't sleep at night is uh, "You're Wrong About." It's so good. And, and, and Sarah Marshall has another film podcast called You Are Good. And um, I, yeah, I, I always just put... It, and also, she doesn't have any ads on her podcast, so you don't have that thing. You know when you're trying to go to sleep and you're having a slight panicky one? And you're like, okay, I'm getting lulled, I'm getting lulled. It's like, have you heard about Squarespace? And you're like, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, I love that podcast. And even though she sometimes talks about, like, horrifying things, and I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Off to sleep. Um, but it, what's weird, um, think, 
speak, I know like lots of people <laughs> when I meet them at these events, they like apologize for having a parasocial relationship with me as if I don't have parasocial relationship with other people. It's like we're all having like cheeky parasocials. Like it's fine. <laughs> um, but I, I was like, I was massively parasocial about Sarah Marshall. But now we're becoming kind of buddies. And I'm like, I don't know if I can handle this actually. <laughs> it's, it's like I text her and I'm like, I can't be texting you. You're my sleepy time activity. <laughs> So that's nice. Thank you for that question. That was really good. Anyone else? Yes. The question was, are you going to be writing the TV show? Well, like the thing is, we talk about writing the TV show, and like it's it's. It, I've had basically, I've had most of my work optioned at this point, uh, which is a real blessing because it's basically money for nothing like it's like it's like money for nothing it's, it's like you know getting 10 grand for work you did three years ago thank you um but you know not, and like none of it's been made and none of it's gone even close to being made and um yeah and that's just fine it's what you just accept but of all the things that I have had option. This one seems like, like people are, like no actors are attached to it yet, but like quite valuable producers and directors are attached to it that we haven't announced yet. And that still is no, and it's like it's being produced by Elliot Page, um, who's very nice. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and he's in, in partnership with Universal. He's got, and it, like, you know how you hear about actors who have, like, you know, production companies, and you're like, okay, you know? <laughs> but, like, he's actually making stuff. Like, it's, um, stuff that's getting made. So it's, 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 it feels like the, the, the warmest thing that's gonna get, you know, might happen, like, knock wood. But, um, yeah, I, I, I plan to write at least some of it. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I hope it, I hope it happens. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, are there any great books that you've read lately that you'd recommend? Oh, um, yes. Uh, uh, Tom Lake by Anne Patchett. It's so good, but you have to get an audiobook because Meryl Streep does it. <laughs> and, uh, and what's great about it, it's like... Uh, it's it's if you if you liked the Rachel incident, you'll you'll love this little author called Anne Patchett. <laughs> um, but it's like very very similar vibe in that it's like two you know it's like it's a very like cozy and funny ride of like women like looking back on this these very influential times in their life, um, and then like the tension and the the tension just really, really builds. But it's set during like the early 80s, during like Summerstock Theatre in, uh, in Michigan. But what's great about it, because Meryl Streep narrates it, and she's talking about like actors rehearsing and stuff, you almost feel like it's her life story, even though it isn't. So, and we know so little about Meryl that it's like, ooh. Like, <laughs> interesting. Um, so yeah, Tom Lake was the last book I really loved. I'm reading Zadie Smith at the moment, and it's taken a while to get going, but it's really getting going now, and I'm enjoying it now. Um, what else was there? Uh, Monica Heisey is really good, actually. If anyone's read that, it's, she's, she's a good friend, and um, she's also the source of Monica's ass, if anyone is familiar <laughs> with that. That's, uh, yeah, that's great, too. But like, yeah, Tom Lake by Ann Patchett was like the big one that I loved recently. Thank you. Oh, the anticipation. Hi. Today <laughs> you're in a room with 200 of your closest friends. <laughs> what do you really think about and just like that? Oh. <laughs> okay, so how long do we have? <laughs> oh, 
Okay, so um, the uh, so uh, we we covered season one of I'm Just Like That on the podcast, and then like we thought we'd do season two, and then it was just so depressing. <laughs> and I yeah, there, there was definitely like. I actually think season one was quite good in many ways. I think that, like, I was really impressed by, like, how they took, like, big, big swings. Like, like killing big. Um, <laughs> killing big for one. But also, like, Miranda leaving Steve. Like, obviously, people were, like, so pissed off about that because they all, like... They had, like, the parasocial relationship, but once removed because it's with a fictional character of, like, no, Miranda and Steve, no! But, like, I think if you all look back at those episodes now in season one with the hindsight of two and a half years, like, you'll see that, like, you know, it, it was the only... Th like, dramatically, it was so interesting that they did that. And... Um, I, you know, I, obviously there were some bum notes in the first season, but I think generally the drama and the human relationships were great. Uh, season two, though. And, like, it was weird because I feel like I, I feel the opposite to other people because other people said they hate season one and that they actually quite liked it in season two. But it was like, there was a middle section where it was really good and it felt like classic sex in the city. And then it just, like, it was so bafflingly bad. It was, it was like... We've all watched it, right? Yeah, but like, it would like go out of its way to avoid drama. It would like set up all these things that seemed really juicy, like oh, Aiden's coming back, wow, 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 wow. And then it would be like, he didn't, like, of a 10 episode season, he should, sorry, you asked. 10 episode <laughs> season, we don't meet him till episode seven. And then all of that episode is her being like, oh, I'm meeting him tonight, and her being like in a different restaurant across the street, which is like, this is just not good enough. Like, and then they have no dialogue together, and we just have to understand that, like, oh, he's like, yeah, it's really good. We don't know why, but they're really, we're re they're really connecting, and we have no dialogue to evidence this. And, uh, but then, like, and then it's like, it throws you, it's like, okay, so um, they're back together, but he won't go up to her apartment. And I was like, okay, this is interesting, because, like, the whole thing with Aiden is that he's always asking Carrie for things that she can't give him. Like, first, it's like, he, she won't give up smoking for him, or, and she tries to, and she fails, and she's always, like, he's, he, he's a man that always sets her impossible tasks. And then, like, it's about, you know, letting go of Big, and she can't do that. And then it's about marrying him, and she can't do that. And so then to put this final hurdle of, like, he won't go up to her apartment. And then she just gives in really easily. She's like, I'll buy a new apartment. It's fine. <laughs> and it's like, and that, and that, like, making them so obscenely wealthy that their planets are, they're, they're like, they're like, problems don't exist on planet Earth. And it's like, okay, sorry, I'll stop. But like, I have so much to say. For the record, I was the one who said to Dolly, I was like, I think we should do at least one episode. And she was like, no, I hate it too much. And I was like, fine. And, uh, but yeah, but it was like, about seven times in the season, they would have this moment where like, one of the characters would, it would be, you know, obviously Michael Patrick King loves a metaphor, and so do I. But, um, but it would be like, um, oh, Seema, her Birkin bag, it's not about the Birkin bag, it represents New York. Or like, um, like, oh, sh like uh, Lily's after selling off her Chanel dress, and now Charlotte wants to get it back, but it's not about the Chanel dress, it's about not being able to let Lily grow up. And it's like, the only way that these people can feel any human emotion is through luxury goods. And, it's, and I was like, I don't, I just, just talk to each other. Like, that's what you used to do. And I, I hate that about it, and I hate the show, and I will watch it forever. <laughs> Thank you for asking. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question, if there is 
Oh, that's so much pressure. <laughs> Hi, I hope it's good. I'm on a bunch of antidepressants. I've had like two beers, so it's <laughs> oh my god, possibly not buzz. going to be. <laughs> um, but I feel like there are so many points in the book where we get like an idea that James has so much more happening for him, James Devlin. Yeah. And at the end, it's like, oh, I can't tell you. It's his story. Here's his like details, basically. Is yeah. there a version where we get James's story? Because I like went to sleep last night thinking about it because I just finished the book. Oh. Um, and I want there to be that version because I feel like there's so much there. Um, does Is that going to happen for us? Or? No. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know what you mean in that like I – I think Rachel, the Rachel Simpson is very much, uh, it's about a book about somebody, and it's kind of playing with an idea of the gay man and the straight woman and the, um, the cultural criticism of that when you see it in Will and Grace or in Sex and the City with Stanford and everything. Um, that like, oh, you know, it's like this lazy thing where the gay man is the accessory to the straight woman and it makes her seem kind of cool and urban or whatever. And Rachel is like, she is somebody who's seen those episodes of Sex and the City. Like, she's seen Will and Grace. And when she first meets James, she's very excited to have a gay best friend. And then, like, it's kind of, among many things, it's a book about realizing you're not the main character. And, like, actually, Rachel's James's accessory. Like, she's literally the accessory to this kind of crime they commit together. Um, and I, I like... The idea, and that's so much, and it, because it's so much of a, a coming of age novel, so much of coming of age is realizing that you're not the main character, and it's also realizing that like everyone around you is real, and your friends have separate motive motivations to you, and and she realizes that at several crushing moments, and there is a whole separate story with James that's like off the page, and we only get hints to, but I don't think I would ever write it. First of all, because I think, like, for this kind of novel, sequels, they rarely work, it seems. Like, you know, um, did you read that book, uh, Lost by Andrew Sean Greer? Mm, less, yeah. Less, sorry. But the next one is Less is Lost. Exactly, yeah. that's it. So that, one, that book won the Pulitzer. I loved it. I, one of my favorite books. I adored it. I did an episode mm. of the podcast on it. Um, and then he wrote a sequel. And, like, it was really good. It was re he's a great writer. But there was something, it just, you could tell that Les was a book that he wrote in the urgency of a moment of a story he had to tell. And then Les is Lost, the sequel, was like, well, I've kind of moved on, but here's some fun bits kind of thing. And I just, it, it really proved to me that like novels in the literary sort of fiction genre shouldn't really have sequels. I can't really think of anyone who's done it well. Mm, there's also just so much, because it won the Pulitzer, there's so much pressure of the follow-up, yeah. which you might also feel for the Rachel incident, because it's done so well of, like, people <laughs> well, are invested. Been, but you might feel that about the TV show also. Yeah, but I think if the TV show does get made, there will be an opportunity, because, you know, the Rachel incident is told from the narration of Rachel, so we only see what Rachel sees. But the TV show won't be that, so we'll see other yes yeah, so we might get more of James's so, yeah. perspective. Yeah. And there's that beautiful moment where Deanie, one of the characters actually says, I hate being this character. I felt like yeah. she was yelling at you, writing it. Yeah. <laughs> I hate that I'm this character in this story. Like, yeah. you know, play, playing this role. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's, I think that that's very real, that people, you know, we do narrativize our life. And when we discover that we're that character, we're like, oh, no. You know? <laughs> it's happening to me. <laughs> Um, well, that's all we have time for, but thank you. thank you so much, Caroline. Oh, before we hit the signing queue, can you just be thinking about this? It's Gavin's birthday, the day after I come back. If anyone knows, and Melbourne, it's like the best shopping in the world. 
shops for men, but men that men that are like like graphic design and you know cool bits. Demeroids. Venroy. Venroy. Okay, great. If there's any more, please just tell me in the queue. <laughs> and just general gift ideas for my very new husband. <laughs> Um, that signing queue, by the way, will be happening upstairs on the third floor. So there are books for sale um, by readings at the back of the room and then the ushers will um, show everybody up to the third floor where Caroline will be waiting. Thanks. Thank you so much, Caroline. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to Caroline O'Donoghue in conversation with Abigail Ullman, recorded on Thursday the 12th of October at the Wheeler Centre as part of Spring Fling. If you're interested in hearing more from Caroline O'Donoghue, her second Spring Fling event recorded at the Capitol, Sentimental Garbage, live in Melbourne, with special guest Mia Forhurst, is now available to watch in full over on the Wheeler Centre's YouTube channel. Spring Fling was proudly supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria and the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund. A special thanks to official bookseller Readings and accommodation partner The Sofitel. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.